Well, I haven't traveled much in my life. So um, for instance, I've kind of only been out of the country two times my whole entire life, and it's just across the Mexico border, like two times. So I would cross the Mexico border, be there during the day, and then come back across the border and be in the United States for that night. So like, I haven't gone and explored much of this world or the crazy cool things that God has created in this world. I haven't been to Rome. I haven't seen all the things that are in Rome. I haven't been to Paris. I haven't done any of these great cool things. However, there was one trip whenever I was in lower elementary that I will never forget. And this trip was to Creed, Colorado, all right? Creed, Colorado. Now, for some perspective here, I grew up in Oklahoma, all right? So Oklahoma is probably the flattest place on the entire planet. I went back for a visit during grad school with a friend while he, we were in grad school together, took him back to Oklahoma as we were kind of taking him around, showing him different places where I grew up just kind of asked what he thought, and here's what he said. He said, the only thing I want to see as flat as this is the ocean. (laughs) Uh, Oklahoma is so flat. Like, you can see miles and miles down the road. Now, I find a sense of beauty in it, but if you're not from there, I can see how you probably wouldn't. So to say that I wasn't accustomed to, like, beauty or significance when it came to God's creation might be an understatement, all right? So imagine me as a little kid, Going to Oklahoma, this is probably about six, or going to Creed, Colorado, um, a kid from Oklahoma, being six or seven, and seeing some of these sites. All right, so this is downtown Creed. You can see the downtown, and then there's this massive little cliff that's off the side. Then you have North Clear Creek Falls that's there as well. So we got to actually go up at the top and got to see the waterfall that was coming down. And then you have the next picture which is the Wheeler Geologic Area, Um, just standing there and seeing some of these different scenes um, at six or seven coming from Oklahoma just blew my mind. I had no sense for what I was seeing with my own eyes for the very first time. I mean, I was in awe at the beauty and the size of these cliffs. They just seemed so (laughs) Grandious. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a word, but that's, that's what I'm saying right now. And hey, these feelings that I felt as I was kind of seeing these scenes for the very first time, a kid from Oklahoma that's only seen flat and then seeing these large crevices and cliffs, these feelings that I felt inside of me and these awe and this significance and this wonder is how Paul wants us to respond to the passage that we looked at last week. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 gives us this hymn about Jesus. And if you're looking at all of the Bible, you see this, this passage is like one of the greatest peaks that you can find in all of Scripture. Paul works through just who Jesus is and how he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. How he humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient to the point of death, and that's even death on the cross, the most humiliating death that you could experience. At that point in time, Jesus went to that for you and me. And then it says that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess this Jesus is Lord. We're supposed to look at this hymn, and just be taken aback by it, by the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, about the grandeur 
of who Jesus is. And we should be moved to awe and wonder about the God who left his rightful place in heaven and came down to earth and died the humiliating death for you and me. This God-man who was put down into a tomb and then raised three days later, and now he sits above all of creation. There's no one above him. It's supposed to take us aback. It's supposed to work this sense of wonder and awe inside of us. And we get this, we see this, by the very first verse of what we're looking at this evening. Verse 12, look at it with me. It says this, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, look at this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The wonder at Christ from the hymn of last week leads you to faith or salvation, as Paul puts it here. And then the grandeur of Jesus leads you to this reverence and awe, this fear and trembling, as Paul puts it in verse 12. Now, this is the proper response for us to Jesus when we see him and we behold him. It's faith and amazement. And what Paul does in the rest of our passage that we're looking at tonight is he encourages us to grow in this faith and this wonder and amazement and this awe from what we behold of Jesus in the hymn from last week. And so here's what I want us to do tonight. I want us to look at this passage that we just read through in a couple of parts, all right? So I wanna look at verses 12 and 13 together and in that, those two verses, I believe Paul gives us a couple of principles for how we are to work out our salvation. All right, so I want to look at those two verses. I want to pack a little bit how we have these principles for how do we play this out? How do we tease this out? How do we grow in this faith and this wonder and amazement that God has called us to walk with him in this life? How do we do this? Well, Paul gives us some principles for how we do that. And then verses 14 through 18, we see the context by which we are supposed to work out our salvation here in this life. And so I want us to look at these two parts We'll talk about some different points of application in there, and then we'll conclude, all right? So here's, we're going to look at the principles first, all right? So before I just dive into the principles, there's a word here that I think we need to kind of work through just a tad, because I think there might be some confusion. If you're like me, there might be confusion in your mind about what Paul's getting at here, all right? So um, this word is salvation, all right? You might be thinking, well, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on what salvation is here. But whenever you read what Paul says, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There might be some confusion that that stirs in your mind, all right? Because if you're like me, you think, well, I thought salvation was just an entire gift. I thought this was something that Jesus did fully for me. That the, the only thing that I contribute is my sin. That all I'm called to is to put my worst foot forward and then Jesus, as I place my faith and hope in him for salvation, that he comes and he scoops me up and he embraces me and he brings me into God's family. I, I thought that's what Paul has said elsewhere about salvation. And this is true. That's true about your salvation. All right? So what Paul is doing here, whenever he speaks of salvation here, he's using it in reference to the day of the Lord. You see this later in our passage in verse 16. It says, then I can boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. You see, so in essence, Paul is saying from the moment of faith until the day that Christ returns or the day of salvation, 
When Jesus comes and everybody stands before him, those who declare Jesus, those who have placed their faith in Jesus will be saved. That's what Paul is speaking of here, this salvation that he's talking about. So yes, salvation is completely an act that God has done for you. You, you, are, you are to step in and embrace all that Jesus has done for you. And as you do that, you place your full, play, your full faith and trust in him. You declare him as Lord. Yes, he fully embraces you. You are saved. The, the other word that you can use for this is that you're justified. There's nothing that you contribute. But what Paul is saying here is the salvation. He's speaking of the day of the Lord that's coming, all right? So hopefully that brings some clarity for you, all right? So we're looking at this, that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, looking forward to this day of the Lord, the day that you step into faith with Jesus, and then as you're working through this faith, the teasing out this faith with Jesus until he comes back again, that's what Paul is speaking of here, all right? So for us to do that, for us to grow in this faith that we have by looking at Jesus, that we're taken aback by Jesus by looking at him in this, this hymn or the psalm that Paul has placed before us on the passage just before this, for us to grow in our sense of wonder and amazement and awe, he gives us a couple of principles for how we do that. All right, so the first one is this, that our growth requires our participation. Our growth requires our participation, all right? So look, Paul says, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. So here's what Paul is saying. He says, hey, what you did with me while I was there, these commands of Jesus that I gave you, this instruction of Jesus that I gave you, this obedience that you had while I was with you. Hey, even while I'm not with you, continue to live into these things. Continue to participate. The, the teachings that I gave you, the commands that I gave you, these, this method, this methodology, this path, this instruction, like continue to do these things, not just when I'm with you, but even more when I'm not with you. Paul's basically saying, like, hey, step into this, all right? Your growth in Jesus, look, requires intentionality that looks like effort. That's what Paul is saying to the Philippians here. He's also saying it to you and me. So look, for you to grow into Christian maturity, it never happens by slipping into it. My, my sons um, really got into cartoons within the last couple of years, um, so they're just kind of exploring all the cartoons, and one of the things that they've learned from these cartoons is that banana peels are slippery. And so they have started, after they eat a banana, they'll take it and put it around the house, and then they'll ask me to come into the room hoping that I'll come and step on said banana peel and that I'll slip, and that like I'll slip into something or do something. Well, at times, I feel like we kind of live this way, y'all. I feel like at times we're just kind of waiting for where's the next banana peel that I'm going to walk down this life. And as I'm walking down this path of life, this random path that I'm walking down, that maybe there will be a banana peel there. And I'll somehow slip into holiness. I'll somehow slip into Christ-likeness. Somehow I'll slip out of the sin that I struggle with and just so happen to slide into this Christ-likeness that God wants me to live here in this life. And look, you're not, you don't just wake up one day and then think like, huh, I'm so much more like Jesus today. 
That, that was so easy. That was amazing. That, Paul's saying, no, that's not how this works. He's saying it requires intentionality that looks like effort. Paul actually illustrates the Christian life elsewhere, this life and faith in 2 Timothy 2, in the terms of farming or like Olympic training. All right? So both farming and Olympic training, they require discipline, don't they? To be a farmer, what do you have to do? You have to wake up early in the morning, and you have to go attend the fields, or you have to attend the animals. There's chores that have to be done. There's things that have to be done around the farm. For you to make a living on the farm, there's a lot of task and responsibility and discipline that's required of you in order to see those things come to fruition. Same thing with Olympic training. Like, you don't just happen into being an Olympic athlete, right? Like, there's a lot of discipline that comes with a regimen for a person that's training to go and compete at the highest level. I mean, there's things that you have to watch with your own body and your nutrition. There's intervals and there's all these different physical activities that you have to go do that push your body to the brink in order for you to go perform at the highest level against the other athletes that are at the highest level from their country. Like, it requires discipline, And that's the way that Paul illustrates the Christian life. It's like you're kind of like a farmer. You're kind of like an Olympic athlete that's training to go and compete at the highest level. There's discipline that's required from you. And this discipline are these habits that you instill in your life that help you grow in your faith and grow in a sense of wonder and awe of who Jesus is as you behold him at the peaks of scripture, like what we saw last week. So that means that you have instilled these habits of being in God's word regularly in your life, daily. You're going to God's word, you're getting yourself into God's word and you're teasing out this faith that God has called you to by beholding Jesus, that you have these, you pursue God in prayer that you don't try to live this life in self-dependence, but you're living this life in a complete dependence on the God who has called you out of darkness and into light. That you are open and honest with your struggles and your sin in this life with other people. That you're, you're bringing these things to light in front of others because you're saying, hey, this isn't like Jesus. I wanna be like Jesus and I need you to help me become like Jesus. And so the very thing that I need is to get rid of this sin, and I need help. I need other people in my life that are encouraging me to walk in faith and awe and wonder with Jesus. And look, all of this requires discipline and habits and rhythms in your life, and that's what Paul is instructing them to do. He says, hey, if you're gonna grow in this faith that God has called you to in Jesus, then it's going to require your participation. Now, here's the good news for us. Working out our salvation is not just this self-reliant activity, all right? It's an intentionality with dependence, which leads us to the second principle, which is this. Our, our growth requires God's work and power, all right? So to work out your salvation also requires that God will will and work in your life. We see this in verse 13. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So consider again farming and Olympic training, all right? This is why this 
Paul is so brilliant with his illustrations, all right? Farmers can plant seeds. They can water the seeds. They can fertilize the seeds. But what can't they do? They can't cause it to grow. You're completely incapable as a farmer of producing that. You, you've learned some of the rhythms, you've learned some of the, the science behind it, and you can get in and you can help pro- provide a place for these seeds to be fostered and to grow, but a farmer can't make them grow. Same thing with an Olympian. Olympian can put in the training, but they can't physically alter their bodies. Instead, what, what they do is they put in the work for the desired results that they have in mind. Like, they can't just flip a switch and be like, I have greater lung capacity. You know what I'm saying? Like, they can't just check a a box and then, like, their heart can withstand higher deals of stress as they're out doing physical training. They can't do that. But what they can do is they can use the gifts that God has originally given them, and they can put in the training, but all they can do is put in the training. There has to be something else that helps bring about the results in their body that allow them to go test and go perform at the highest level. So it is with our faith. See, God has called us, yes, to cultivate these habits and these disciplines in our life, but as we do that, what you find is that God is actually the one that's producing the growth in your life. Paul says it elsewhere just so perfectly in 1 Corinthians 3.7. He says, So then, neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Look, we are dependent on his power and his work in our life for our faith and our wonder and our amazement to grow in this life. It requires our participation, yes, But the growth actually comes at the result of God working and willing in our life. So, look, one of the big themes that we've been trying to tease out in this book has been partnership. And look, there's a partnership that's going on here. There's a partnership between us and God and our growth and our sanctification in this life. You don't don't bring anything to the table when it comes to your justification. That's completely by God. But your sanctification does require your participation. It requires intentionality that looks like effort. And as you put in this intentionality, what you find is that as you step in and you live into this, that God at the same time is willing and working in your life, bringing about results in your life. So here's a few examples, all right? So the first one is this. Practicing spiritual habits, that's something that you and I do. That's, a, that's something you and I have to discipline ourselves. It's something we have to instill in our day-to-day patterns, that we're getting into the Bible, that we're praying, that we're pursuing the disciplines in our life. But look, producing spiritual growth, that's on God. That's not on you. You're stepping in, you're participating, but God is the one that works in it, and he's the one that produces the results. The second one, sharing our faith. That's something that you and I do. We step into relationships and we share our faith with other people. But look, bringing people to faith, that's a God thing. You can't change hearts. That's something that God does. But we, we live into this. He uses us. He's given us the gift and the, the I, I can't imagine why he would even use someone like a me to go out and share the faith and then use me in order to see people come to faith. But that's what he does. But he's the one that brings them to the faith. All I'm called to do is to go out and share 
Same thing with enduring trials. We endure trials. Trials come in this life. That's something that we're called to do. That when suffering comes, we remain with Jesus. We don't abandon Jesus, we remain with Jesus. But look, in the midst of that, you still get God's presence in the midst of suffering. We just, we sang about this just moments ago. And then at the same time, what we see is that God works these sufferings and these trials out for our good. You don't do that. God does that. God is so amazing and loves you so dearly that even the worst things in this life he uses for your good. But look, you don't bring that about. God does that in your life. So look, this is, this is the pattern for us growing in this faith and this wonder and amazement and awe. It's this partnership that we participate and that God brings about the growth. That's what Paul's trying to instruct the Philippians here. That's what he's trying to tell you and me. This faith, this wonder, this amazement that you get from this giant crevice in verses 5 through 11. Look, this is how you tease it out. This is how you grow. This is how you walk with Jesus in this life. Now, these are the principles for working out your salvation, but Paul also gives us the context for which we work out our salvation in verses 14 through 18. So this is the context, all right? So verses 14 through 18, you have Paul where he's, he's speaking about relationships with one another, all right? So what, what does he say here? He says this, do everything without grumbling or arguing. That requires people, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That requires people in your life, grumbling and complaining. There has to be somebody that you're doing this with. That's what Paul is getting at here. Then he, he uses the, the plural version of the word you here in a few different places. So whenever he's talking about being pure and blameless, when he's talking about being children of God, when he's talking about living in a crooked and perverted generation that among them you shine like stars, Paul's speaking, he's using this, these you language in a plural sense, that you're doing this in the midst, the context of other people. So look, every command that Paul gives in verses 14 through 18 occurs in the context of relationships. So the context of working out your salvation is in relationships, most specifically within a local church. Paul's writing to an actual specific church at this point in time, which is in Philippi. And he's saying, hey, like, you, whenever things get hard, you, you're not bowing out and you're going to the other church down the road. No, he's, he's calling them to remain, to be committed to these people. That when things get hard, that you work it out with one another. You don't grumble and argue and complain about one another. No, you, you work it out. The context by which you work out your growth in faith and amazement and wonder in this life is in the context of human relationships, the local church. Paul gives us some ideas of what this looks like practically throughout this passage. So let's take a look at just a few of them, all right? So here's the first one. For teasing this out in the midst of relationships, it looks like being considerate versus combative. So he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be pure and blameless, all right? So look, this is Paul reiterating to us again that you put your in other's interests above your own. That you're not digging the trench whenever you get into a disagreement with someone in the church and you're firming yourself in your position 
and then you're just combating with whoever has this different argument with you about said thing in the life of the church or within the social spheres of this world. He's saying, no, you put other people's interests above your own. This also means whenever maybe you hear something, it's like, man, that, that like hits me wrong. That as people of God that we are to work more from giving the benefit of the doubt than just automatically having these negative thoughts about the person because we know the Christ that lives inside of them. And so we, we give the benefit of the doubt. We, we don't just jump to assuming the worst. And instead of coming with questions that are combative or that are convicting, you're coming with questions to try to understand it also means that you recognize there may be differences amongst us. Look, some of us, you just feel like the conversation is just getting started whenever it begins to be disagreement or it feels like conflict. I don't get that, but some of, some of us in this room probably feel that, you know what I'm saying? It's like, hey, when we, voices begin to rise, it feels like the conversation is just starting. Not everybody feels that way, all right? <laughs> like, you put other people's interests above your own. You try to be mindful of other people that are around you. Look, for others of us, we need to recognize that conflict isn't always bad. That there's times for us to address differences, for us to step into them. And it doesn't mean that as soon as things get tough or things get hard, that it's time to bail on the relationship. No, instead, you're considerate. Hey, I want to come in. I want to understand more. We disagree on this particular topic, this social issue that's going on. I, I feel like I have a different perspective. Can you help me understand? That's what it looks like for us to work out our faith, for us to live in a sense of faith community in this life. We, we don't be combative. Instead, we're considerate. We put other people's interests above our own. We, we live into this. And when the things get hard, we don't bail. We press in. There's a, a pastor that, um, as he was writing on this particular part, said, hey, like, a lot of what produces this disgruntledness, this argumentation is often discontentment. There's, like, this discontentment that's going on inside of your heart. And he said, like, if there's any person in this world that should not be discontent, it's the Christian and he, he put it in likeness to this because we have these treasures that are waiting for us in heaven. He said, it's like a, a person that's going to New York to inherit this large estate. And as they go to New York, they're going to inherit this large estate. As they go into the city, they're about a mile out from the city and the car breaks down. And as the car breaks down, they get out and they start screaming, my car's broken down, help me, my car's broken down, help me. As if like they're this beggar that, isn't away, that doesn't have this large treasure that's just awaiting them. And the pastor, this pastor is John Newton, just this old pastor from long ago. He says, look, we're in our last mile in this life. We have, in just a, a matter of moments, our last breath could be right around the corner. And at the end of that breath is treasure that's waiting you. And he says, look, for us to be this discontent people that are, that are talking about these things that are so minute that we're grumbling and arguing about these things that we're causing division that seem so minute and so small, it shouldn't be a part of the life of a Christian. 
instead of being combative, no, we live into being considerate. The second one is morality versus immorality. We see this in another phrase. Paul says that we be children of God who are faultless, look, in a crooked and perverted generation. Now, maybe, you, maybe you're like me and you just have this picture of like, okay, we're, we're thinking about the moral person now. So um, we're just thinking about the religious person, the person that seems like they have it all together. And at times this person can really be kind of like this nasty taste in our mouth. You know what I'm saying? They've, they feel like this nasty taste in their mouth because they seem like they have it all together, but man, you just have questions whenever they're in private about if they're the same person. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just things, these feelings, there's these, maybe these moments where they kind of portray a different person than who they try to cast their light to be in public. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about a character that looks like Jesus a morality that looks like Jesus, a character that looks like someone that follows and wants to live out the life of Jesus in this life. They're not trying to model some other religious person. In fact, they're trying to live into what it looks like to be like Jesus in this life. So look, I think D.L. Moody kind of puts it best. He's famous for saying this. He says, character is what you are in the dark. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here. That you don't, you're a people. You're a person and then you're a people. Then when people look at your life, they don't have those questions of like, what is this person really like in private? This is, this is kind of like the, the image that they cast before people while they're in public, but I really have questions what they're like in private. And a lot of times that's worked out because you invited, invited them into some of these private places where you're honest and you're open about these struggles and these things that are going on in your life. And you're kind of like giving them a picture inside what's going on in your life. Now, look, I'm not saying that you go and you do that, that you're casting all of your deepest, darkest secrets before every single person that comes across the, the planet that you interact with in this world. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that you are a person that lives openly and honestly enough that you allow people to peer in and gaze in to some of the mess that you're trying to work through as you're growing into likeness with Jesus here. You're inviting people in. Like the key to this is like accountability, that there's this sense of honesty that you're bringing yourself before other people saying, hey, this isn't like Jesus, but this is like who I am right now. And I need your help to get to this place where I'm more like Jesus. Like confession is the gift of repentance for a Christian because God has dealt with your deepest, darkest things in the darkness of the night where Jesus hung on the cross in your place. Like all the things that God ever knew about you, which he knows more about you than you know yourself, God has dealt with that in the darkness of the day of the cross. And so look, you get to live in by bringing and exposing these things that you know aren't like Jesus to other people so they can help you live in such a way that you're pursuing likeness with Jesus in this life that you don't have to worry, you don't have to hide, you don't have to live in fear, but you get to walk arm in arm, hand in hand with other people that God has placed you with in the church together. You're moral instead of immoral. And then third, you live a life of conviction versus a life of confusion. See, Paul say this, holding firm to the word of life. Now, I wrestled with putting the word clarity here instead of conviction. Um, 
It seems like it would fit better with the opposite, with confusion, right? But you can have clarity, but still not have a passion about something. You know what I'm saying? You, you catch me? Like, there are a lot of people that are very clear about certain matters, but they're still very, like, they can set it aside at any point in time. I, I went with conviction here because I think that's what Paul's trying to get at when he says you hold firmly. It's like you have the steel iron grip on something because you believe in it so much. Like you can never let it go because it's literally like the thing that's keeping you going in this life. You're holding firm to it, this word of life. When you possess conviction, you hold on to something with this tightness, this steel grip. That's what Paul's trying to assert to us when he says you hold on with like this firm grip to the word of life. There's a growing conviction about the truth of the gospel. Like we don't remain confused about parts of our faith, but rather we press into them in order for us to understand them and us to grow in a deeper passion and conviction about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. You don't just remain in this confusion. No, you, in order to stand firm, you press into the questions that you have about the faith. The reverence and the awe that we possess for Christ serves as fuel for our understanding in this faith. Like, I want to know the gospel. I want to know the depths of this thing. It's the best news that I've ever heard. That God literally left heaven himself, came down and lived the life that I was supposed to live in this life, and then he died for me. I want to know the depths of this truth. I have to. There's literally no other hope for me in this life. That, that's what it, Paul's trying to get at here. Like, no, you hold firmly to this. And you do it in the context of relationships. There's other people that are like, yes, I want to know this gospel too. Let's go deep in it together. That's what Paul's trying to get at to the Philippians, but he's also trying to get at it with us. The key here is devotion. There's this devotedness inside of you. Like, I want to know the beauty. I want to extract every ounce of beauty out of the gospel that I can because I want to know it so deeply. There's this burning passion and conviction inside of you that you can't let it go. You hold firm to the faith. And you do it in the midst of relationships. So Paul says that when we do these things, he says we shine like stars in the world. When we work out our faith and our wonder and our amazement and awe at who Jesus is in this context of relationships, I think Paul has this idea of Matthew chapter 5, the city on a hill, this light of the world. He has this mentality, this idea that when you see people that are participating in their growth and that God is producing the growth, when you see people that are working together and they're not bailing on each other when things get hard and they're not they're not grumbling, they're not arguing, they're these people that are considerate, they're not combative, that they're these people that are trying to live out their faith genuinely in this life, so they're, they're moral people instead of these immoral people. When you see that these are people that have deep conviction about what they believe in, they're not just okay with just being confused about the faith, like these people that are pressing in deep, he says, you shine like stars in the world. That when people look at this community, this faith community, that it serves as a witness in and of itself to the watching world that's around you. So look, like, here's my desire for us. When we came to start Storyline, we didn't come to start a service. We came to see a new people that are formed together by God in a city that so desperately needs the gospel. 
Like, I, we, services are absolutely essential to what we're doing. They're not everything, though. This is why we place so much emphasis on, like, groups and getting into relationships here and trying to dig and learn your faith. Like, we want to be a community and not just a service. So look, here's, here's what I want to ask, all right? There's just a couple of questions of application for us, all right? So look, here, here's my questions for you as we're kind of wrapping up. Where do you need to grow, and then what habits do you need to create to get there? What is, basically, this is what, what does participation look like for you? What is lacking in your life? What is the thing that you're like, I know I need to grow in this. This is something that's been with me. It's kind of felt like a thorn in my side for a really long time, and I just haven't dealt with it. What does it look like for you to participate and to deal with it? You know what I'm saying? Like, what are the habits that I need to create in my life, the disciplines that I need to form in my life in order for me to step into this so I can see God do the work that I know he promises he will do? And then secondly, it's not so much a question, but a plea. Relationships, stick with it. Stick with it. Look, we live in a culture right now that basically declares, like, you either agree with me or you're out of my life. And that doesn't have a place in the life of the church. It doesn't. It's good that you get in a relationship with people that are different than you when it comes to social issues that maybe they have a different perspective than you. It's good for you to rub shoulders with people that are different from you because it's when we have these differences that we see some of the things that are exposed in our life that we need to deal with. And then sometimes God brings these people that are different from us in order for us to take steps of growth towards Jesus that we could never take without them. So look, when, when it gets hard, you don't bail you don't cancel someone in your life, but you, you stick with it. You live into this community. You, you keep pressing forward with these relationships. Now, I, would, I do want to place a caveat here, all right? Because I, I think things like this at times have been abused by people in the life of the church. Well, here's what I mean. If there's physical harm that's going on in your home, you don't stick with it. That's not what I'm saying here. If there's personal, like, verbal abuse that's going on in your life, I'm not saying stick with it. That's not what I'm saying. It's when there's differences that we stick with it. We don't bail. But look, if there's any personal harm towards you or if there's any, like, verbal abuse that's coming your way, I'm not calling you to stick with it. And if anybody ever tries to use my words against it, we're going to have words, all right? But when there's differences, look, don't bail. Stick with the relationship. Look, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is this beautiful picture about who Jesus is. The proper response for us is faith and wonder. That God produces salvation. That when we see Jesus for who he is, we can't not live differently. That we are blown away that the God of the universe would be so infatuated in love with you and me. 
that we want to live this life and become more like Jesus as we walk in faith and wonder in this life. And here's how you do it. You participate knowing that he will be the one that causes the growth, that you live out this faith in the context of relationships, that you're considerate, that you pursue a character that looks like Jesus, and that you have a deep passion to know the gospel, that you hold firm to the word of life. Let's be that church. Let's pray.